Welcome to the True Worth Tech Talks podcast. In each episode, we share insights from a senior level tech or data expert discussing tech projects, products, or platforms. My name's Sam Mickelson, founder of True Worth, a talent solutions business that helps you build tech teams. We offer traditional, permanent, and contract recruitment solutions, and we're here to help you reduce agency spending and build a talent attraction legacy through our subscription solution, True Worth Talent. We're also here to help deliver digital transformation and offer consultancy level advice via the True Worth Collective, a unique, inclusive network of experienced subject matter experts. They are your own virtual bench of tech specialists that can guide, advise, and help you deliver digital transformation in your business. Thank you for finding us and tuning in. You can find out more at trueworthconsulting.com. Links to all our social feeds are in the episode description. And without further delay, let's get going. And I hope you enjoy this episode. Welcome to this episode of the True Worth Tech Talks. Um, this episode is a bit of a, a one-off, an unusual one. We're going to be talking to Christian Marcus, who's my cousin um, and uh, lives over in Copenhagen in Denmark. Christian's um, a real kind of inspiration to me. He is a consultant that helps companies understand what their why is. So he helps them to identify what problems their customer might have so that they can position their product and business as the solution to that problem. He has over 20 years of experience helping small and medium-sized businesses to address all aspects of their operations and sales processes so that they can make the jump to hyperspace. He spent seven years working for Tesla before anyone knew who Elon Musk was, and he's worked with tech startups in Denmark and has also spent time in Silicon Valley working with startups of various sizes, learning and understanding in detail how these businesses operate, grow and thrive. As I said, he's also my cousin and I love spending time with him, even if it is mainly over FaceTime. He's a real intellectual guy, a scholar of well-being corporate social responsibility and sustainability. He is a guru for businesses on how to find their purpose and position their product responsibly, whilst also ensuring they make a profit. So I hope you enjoy this episode. We're going to be talking to Christian about lots of different things, um, helping startup businesses, talking about their why. He's going to share some anecdotes about working for Tesla, how he started at Tesla and a couple of little anecdotes about um, uh, about Elon Musk. He really is an inspiration to me, a very sort of Simon Sinek kind of guy. So I hope you enjoy this episode. Please do share this episode if you like it. It's a long one. So, you know, put your feet up, maybe do some housework as you're listening to this one, but enjoy it. And uh, we'd love to get your feedback. So without further ado, let's crack on with this episode. Good morning, Christian. Welcome to the True Worth Tech Talks podcast. Lovely okay. to have you here. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. It's an absolute pleasure. Um, just for people that uh, you know don't know who you are, Christian, uh, let's first of all 
handle the elephant in the room. You are related to me. You're my cousin from from Denmark. We we share um, your mum, my dad, brother and sister, part of five siblings. Um, and we've met a few times. We've known each other for a very, very long time. God, it's got to be 15 years plus. But I think also, I think we've known of each other all of our lives, really, haven't we? Um, so I appreciate you coming on to the show to support me. But equally, um, I'm really happy to have you on because I think that what you're going to talk about today is really, really interesting. I think it's going to help a lot of startup businesses who are listening to this podcast to really kind of maybe reevaluate what they're doing uh, or, or have a, a second thought about what their why is, because that's what you specialize in. You specialize in helping companies to understand their why. You help them to identify um, the kind of problems that customers might have and then look at their solutions. So not get too bogged down in we've got some great tech, but mm. what problem does this tech solve and how do we actually sell that solution to, to customers and make a profit? Um, yeah. Over the last 20 years, you've helped small businesses, small to medium-sized businesses to help their operations, their sales processes. Um, you also spent seven years working for Tesla Yes. Um, before anyone knew who Elon Musk was. And, um, and since then, you've worked with many, many tech startups in Denmark. You've also spent some time in Silicon Valley with startups of various sizes. And um, and what's quite interesting is you kind of got to understand how those businesses operate, even in Silicon Valley. So you've got a real, you know, diverse background, which we'll dive into. We'll, we'll, we'll obviously go into a bit of detail about that. But do you want to um, do you want to kick off and just expand a little bit uh, and tell everybody a little bit about your background and how you found yourself going from being a DJ in Copenhagen to working for <laughs> the, the the arguably you know one of the most famous people in the world the the the, the biggest electric vehicle business in the world um yeah tell us about that journey if you can yeah thank you thank you for that introduction uh, yeah, so <clears throat> you mentioned that uh, I went from being a DJ. Well, my career path has been anything but straightforward. Um, I did study at Copenhagen Business School. Uh, it was philosophy and economy. And I went straight into um, working in an IT company. I wanted to climb the corporate ladder. Um, I built a sales um <clears throat> sales department in that IT company and and I had a, a now in retrospect a really silly goal of becoming a millionaire by the age of 30. Okay and, well, and, uh, we, we, we all, we've all been there. <laughs> yeah yeah so uh, that was also a factor um, in my decision to to leave that uh, position and start my own fashion agency in Denmark, Sweden and Finland and um, but uh, but at a certain point after working in fashion for a number of years, I realized that that um, I wasn't really connecting my professional life with my personal life. I didn't feel that the purpose I had as a driving force was uh, meaningful. 
um, the the idea of doing something for the majority of your waking hours to make money um, and not really doing any impact in the world um, apart from dressing people in, in clothing. <laughs> uh, it didn't make sense. So okay. um, I I had a... I, I did a change in my life. I started, uh, I, I bought this little uh, place in the center of Copenhagen. It was a storefront. I turned it into an art gallery. We had a really great um, office space in the back that I turned into a co-working space. This was 2006, seven. Um, uh, I built a recording studio in the basement of our um, of our um, uh, little place there. I had some great people coming in, being a part of the community. We had a graphics guy, an artist, a photographer. Um, we had some really cool music producers uh, coming in to, to make records in our recording company or recording um, studio. So... <clears throat> I really, I, I spent a number of years then just exploring my creativity, DJing. Um, I've always loved music. I remember when I heard The Prodigy <laughs> back in, in uh, 1990, I was probably around 13 years old. It just blew my mind when, when the UK rave culture exploded. And, and so it was really about exploring my creativity. And that's also when I started thinking more seriously about what sustainability meant for me. Okay. Because living sustainably isn't just about eating organic or, or ditching fossil fuels or eating less meat. I think it's also really important that it's about taking responsibility for doing good and living in a more ethical manner and, and thus seeing sustainability in a more holistic level. So that was <clears throat> that was the time when I bought um, a, a, a very cute, charming little electric vehicle, uh, a Danish produced one actually. It could uh, drive on a, on a single charge. It would probably take me fifteen miles, <laughs> and and uh, it, it, the maximum speed was uh, probably also around fifteen uh, miles an hour, sixteen miles an hour. <laughs> But it just made so much sense. You could plug in your vehicle in a wall outlet and it would take you where you needed to go. And, and that's when I started looking into electric vehicles. At that time, I had sold my art gallery co-working space and joined a newspaper uh, publication as, as, as the publisher. Um, I joined the partners uh, there it was sort of like a timeout magazine about Copenhagen. It came yeah. out every month. Yeah. And, um, and I drove around in my little electric vehicle. I, <laughs> I, uh, I ran this newspaper. It was, uh, it was an amazing um, experience to really learn about the media uh, industry. And that's when uh, Tesla showed up. There were some charge point operators uh, that started popping up here in Denmark. One company was called Better Place. Um, their whole idea was that they would build battery swap stations where you could mm. drive in, have the battery swapped, and you could keep going, and also charge at home and at work. So I um, I applied for jobs at all three companies, 
and uh, Tesla was one guy with a car in an office space in Copenhagen. So he, he wasn't hiring. <clears throat> and, it, uh, and I started working for a company called Clever, which okay. is now the largest uh, charge point operator in uh, Denmark and also present in, in the other Nordic companies. And at that time, they and we had no idea how to make this a business. Uh, they just knew that they had to be in the electric vehicle space. Okay. So, uh, yeah, that was a little bit of background before we can then uh, jump into more, more war okay. stories about what, my time in Tesla. What's, what's, what's really interesting about that for me is that you were building, you know, community-driven co-working spaces before they were even a thing here in the UK. But that's, that's, that for me is how, you know, I think we in the UK probably look to countries like Denmark and Scandinavian countries as a kind of, um, I don't know, um, a guiding light, you know, mm. you're very ahead of that curve, aren't you really? Mm. Yeah, I, it, I never thought about it like that. And at that time, we, we, didn't, uh, we didn't sit down, make a business plan, say what is needed in the world, we need to make co-working spaces, it's gonna be the next big thing. We just had a good space, we wanted to maximize the level of creative input in the space that we had. So what to do? Well, you rent out um, office tables. Yeah. And, and, and that created a community. We had, we had art openings, we made street parties. Uh, we, I mean, it was, it was all about fun and games really. But now that you say, I mean, now co-working spaces, these creative spaces are, are uh, they're everywhere. And, and yeah. I mean, we work as a, as an example, maybe not the most um, uh, successful story of um, business-wise, but yeah, it, um, it didn't come from a need that we saw in the market. It came from a need that we had ourselves. And I think many great innovations, they come from a need that you have yourself, you have a problem that you want to solve, and you and it turns out that there's other people, like innovators or a niche um, amount of people that that really connect with what you're doing and love what you do, and 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 that's a good starting point for building a company if you have a few people that really love what you do. I'm going to jump past Tesla a little bit, and we'll come back to Tesla. Um, later on but um, when it comes to working with tech startups for you um, whether it be Danish or Scandinavian tech startups um, or what you've seen with um, in Silicon Valley what what have you seen as maybe I guess the biggest mistakes or what what do, what do people get right and what do you think they perhaps forget about or fall short on Right. Let's start with um, what I think is the biggest challenge for startups. And then we will move into what I think uh, you examples of uh, companies getting things right. <clears throat> Nine out of 10 startups that I have been in contact with, they love their solution much more than the problem they're solving. And it is a textbook example of the wrong way of, of 
building a, a product or service that is um, attractive. So love the problem, not the solution. I didn't make that up. Um, lean startup um, that uh, Tesla followed very much and, and most tech companies in Silicon Valley and today, they, they use that as, as their guiding principle, but it's, it's still exceptionally hard because uh, you sort of get a blind spot on how great the tech or the service that you've made is. So remember that customers, they don't care about your solution. <laughs> they care about their own problems. Yeah. They only care about achieving their desired outcomes. They no. only care about achieving their desired outcomes. So they don't care about the tech. And that's um, that's quite interesting because I've I've just start I've just finished watching the Spotify um, oh, yeah. film on 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 Netflix, mm -hmm. and that's classic where Daniel Ek was so focused on the technology and mm -hmm. making the technology right. It it took that other the, the I think it was the legal lady who came in and went, well, hold on a minute, it's mm -hmm. all about playlists. Yeah. You know, get get that yeah. right. Forget about. I mean, it it just so happened they had created an amazing you know, player, but, but that's a classic example of that, isn't it? It is, it is. And that's why you, you really have to engage with your customers continuously. It's the only way to ensure that you're really building what customers want. And, and like Daniel Eck, he spent way too much time on perfecting um, the, the technology, making sure that the lag was minimal, the bit rate, whatever it was that he was focusing on, um, but you really have to empathize deeply with what the problem you're solving for your customer is. And, and I think it was a great example because she really did in the series on Netflix, at least, she understood that it was, they were doing something else, right? It was, it's, it's much like when we went from uh, the cassette tape to the CD, yeah. What was the what was the like the defining moment or the, the the disruptive tech that made us change from from that? It, I would argue, it's probably not because the sound quality was better, and it was most probably because you could choose the track you wanted to hear instantly. You didn't have to rewind or 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 fast forward try and fast forward or find mm. the exact and and yes the the quality was better but then when we moved from cd cds to mp3s was that because the the quality of uh, the music quality was better no it was actually worse but mm. taking your cd with you on a run uh, in your disc man was more or less impossible and um, and you could only have 74 minutes of music on one CD and then you had to change, but you could have, as Steve Jobs says, um, a thousand songs in your pocket on your MP3 player. <clears throat> and it was great that you could just choose one track from this artist and one track from that artist. You didn't have to buy a full album. So there's these key elements that, that, that defines when the innovators and the early adopters 
have adopted the um, technology, but then the, the majority takes it on. And it, it's very often that it's not the thing that the engineers behind it think is, is really um, important uh, for adopting a new technology. And now we're streaming everything. Yeah. Because we don't want to buy the music. We just want to rent access to it when we need it. And, and uh, I don't know what the next step will be, but um, it's, um, it's interesting. It's not always the tech. And it's very seldom the tech that, that decides when a new technology gets adopted. And then you were going to talk about when companies get it right then. Yeah. So if so solutions solutions can be complex, but problems worth solving are usually not complex. So if you you if if you really understand that there is a problem worth solving for someone out there. You start. Um, you you should you should you should work really um, structured and follow a process on developing your uh, first iterations of a possible um, sketch of your product. And and I think it was uh, Brian Chesky from uh, Airbnb that I heard in a podcast saying. You have to do things that don't scale to understand where the real value in your product uh, is for your customer now and in the future. So it may be very handheld. It may be that, that you're using all the resources of people to be with your first potential customers to really handhold them through understanding what value you're bringing with your product, what are the problems that they're solving? And you have to be really specific about it. So I use with, with early stage startups and actually also with scale-ups and uh, SMEs to really refine their value proposition and, and increase their revenue by, by understanding the customers better. I use the classic value proposition canvas that um, most accelerator programs around the world use. And we start by what are the jobs to be done? So right. you ask, what is the jobs that my customer needs to do on a daily basis? And you list those and it's not abstract at all. It's very simple. It is, I need to move this pen from point A to point B. Now, what are the pains of doing it today with the existing solutions? And you go from there and really address the current pains of existing solutions, not, not, not competitors, but existing solutions. And how can you do it better, right? Okay. And um, have you got some examples of that that you've used in the past then? <clears throat> um, uh, yes, I would say that um, one of the startups I, um, I worked with um, some time ago was, um, uh, was a group of PhDs that were uh, probably some of the most intelligent people I ever met. And they were, uh, they've made algorithms that would calculate how to right-size your energy assets for large, um, for large um, property owners that had 
um, very high throughput of energy, for example, airports. And let me explain what right-sizing your energy assets means. It means that you, you spend, you use a lot of energy running your airport. Mm. And you want to make sure that you can um, be as sustainable as possible to have as much green energy as possible. And you don't only want to buy it from the grid. Maybe you want to um, uh, install solar. Maybe you want to have your own wind farms, things like that. Well, wind farms are not that um, good to have close to an airport. So in this case, they would look at uh, solar. And how to calculate what the right uh, amount of square meters of solar was to optimize your energy usage um, in the most sustainable manner. And thus also figuring out how to, what size energy assets, which means also battery storage for the energy that you don't use. So you use it in the, the sun shines during the day, you use it in, during the night. And now I'll get to the point now. So they, I could, I could easily see that what they were doing was great. The solution was amazing. The the depth of knowledge and the and, and the power of the algorithms was um, incredible. But their customers, potential customers, couldn't really understand what the value that they were bringing. So we took them through this. And it turned out that it was important for them to define the mission that we're on. They were on a mission to, uh, to reach um, absolute zero emission energy usage. Mm. And that was, that was a hook that large energy or, or asset owners could then, um, could then uh, sympathize with. Yeah. And then they went to, to make sure that, that you can get a return on investment as fast as possible and that you don't invest more than you need now. Our tech helps you do this very easily and very fast. So it was, you want to go to uh, CO2 neutral um, uh, emission-free energy and you want to do it as cheap as possible and as fast as possible. And in the future, you want to make money from it. Yes, we do. Great. So it was easier for them to then start selling. So, so the thing that I took from that was that, first of all, we're talking about understanding what the, the problems that the customers face and, yeah. and, and ensuring that your technology is meeting um, or solving those problems. Mm -hmm. Secondly, it's about communicating it so that the the end customer kind of gets it and understands it. But what was quite interesting about what you said there was that you're linking it to an overall mission mm -hmm. um, and getting them to buy into the idea of, well, this is a good thing for the planet, etc. And that brings me to sustainability mm -hmm. and corporate social responsibility, because, you know, I've described you as this kind of almost you know guru when it comes to corporate social responsibility and organizations having a purpose mm -hmm. and we were talking about this in 2008 2009 and you you already were going on this journey for for mm -hmm. a few years you were talking to me back then about CSR and how it was really really important and 
I was kind of going, oh, right, yeah. And, and, and nobody here in the UK was talking about that, but it, it, it is then linking whatever it is that you're doing, whatever your product is, whatever your tech is, linking it to a greater purpose. And that's really important, isn't it? Do you want to just sort of expand a little bit on that? Yeah, for sure. And so corporate social responsibility is, is, um, is really, um, it's, it's a part of your, your overall sustainability efforts. And um, I see how we have in, in the Nordic countries, at least, we have, it, it started by looking at, um, looking really about how you treat uh, your, your stakeholders, how you treat your employees, and how to make sure that uh, you, um, you take care of them in a sustainable manner. So you're responsible in a social way. And I'll get back to the CSR point, but now it's now the focus is on um, minimizing CO2 emissions. Now it's really about climate change. And, and what, what I see on a global level is that the social responsibility has sort of fallen a little bit in the background again, mm. where now it's all about reducing emissions, CO2 reduction. And I think one company which is really interesting in this regard is Orsted, the Danish uh, utility company, the world's largest uh, offshore um, um, wind turbine um, energy producer. Right. They <clears throat> they are on a on a mission that is um, is completely um, ingrained in every employee of the company that we we are on a mission to make sustainable energy for everyone, but we are also on a mission to create a sustainable company for everyone, which means that we treat our employees with respect and responsibility and, and, and empathy. And we also treat our, um, our suppliers and our customers uh, with with this kind of sustainable mindset of creating long-term sustainability for uh, for the business, so I, that is it's an interesting mindset because CSR is really about it's also about diversity, um, equity, and inclusion, and it's about uh, it's about social responsibility. It's about minimizing your footprint and really trying to get to where you're putting more back into the ecosystem that you're taking out. Mm. I think that's the next step. There's a lot of talk about circular business models now. And um, the next uh, step of that is regenerative business models where you put more back into the ecosystem that you're taking out. And um, it's one thing I would um, I would recommend everyone to do is really look out the window and uh, look at how nature regenerates itself, how nature creates more value than it takes out of the earth, how everything that grows falls down and becomes nourish um, uh, nutrients for the earth. And why is it that, that we are the only uh, organism on this planet that creates pollution and waste? We should uh, we should mimic uh, nature more. Totally, totally agree. Um, but it's so. I think, I think the thing is, it's 
this is something that we, again, talking about how the Nordics and Scandinavia are just so far ahead of, you know, the UK as an example, or at least I feel like that. Yeah. Um, you know, I think I, I think I, I think we're I, own, I, I, I think know. I think we're only just coming round to that now, and I still feel like it's a bit tokenism with with many organisations. And you talked about um, equality. Mm-hmm. diversity and inclusion mm-hmm. and again that's that's been a, a sort of a tick boxing exercise i fear for a lot of businesses here in the uk and it's and it's only really been i feel in the last few years that companies have woken up to that and um i think it's the same thing with csr and it's it's interesting what you talk about there um i don't think we're doing enough do you do you think that do you no. feel do you feel like in Denmark that you've kind of got that nailed? There? No. Or do you think no. there's still more to go? Oh, cry. Well, if you if the Danes think that there's still more to do, then we we we've got a long way to go, haven't we? Yeah. The, the unfortunate thing with um, with uh, equality uh, between um, specifically uh, male female equality in the workforce, Denmark is unfortunately very long down the list. Um, because there is too much inequality on um, on salaries, or in women in, in top management, women in the board of directors. Um, the stats are not great in Denmark. Um, they are better in Sweden and Finland, <laughs> uh, but so we have a long way to go. What for? <laughs> I don't know if I'm going too far now, but for me personally. Equity between um, equality between any kind of sex, depending on how you um, define yourself, should be a basic human right. And from there, we can then work on, well, how does diversity then uh, influence our organization? How can we gain all the, um, the creativity and innovation that diversity brings? Because all of the studies out there show that when you have a diverse group of people, it can be religion or, or nationality or gender or whatever it is, teams that are diverse are more creative and, and create more value than non-diverse mm-hmm. or very uh, homogenous teams. So yeah. it, 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 we're not even close um to where we should be i think but we are on our way and i think uk is too i'm i don't have that much um experience with how things actually work inside the larger corporations in in the uk you know more about that than i do i think i think that we're um i think there's a lot more awareness um i still think that we're very we're falling behind i think the whole world is really quite quite frankly um but i feel like you know, the positive thing is that um, I think we're all more aware of it. We're more aware of actually where we fall short. And I think people are are okay to talk about it. And it's an accepted thing to be able to talk about and be okay with that if you're not quite getting it right. Yeah. Um, and I think there's a lot more um, organisations that are in, investing in people to head up CSR initiatives and diversity and inclusion um, is 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 um, a, a more accepted job role now than it was probably ten years ago when people were kind of going, oh, what's that? 
don't really people now know and understand what that is whether it be csr or diversity and inclusion so i think we we're going in the right direction but yeah, i think sure. I, I think you're right i think we're all uh, falling behind a little bit still um so i want i want to talk a little bit about your experience um in silicon valley um mm-hmm. before we talk about that do you want to take us back to when you were working for that ev business and mm-hmm. tesla came on your radar again yeah for sure <clears throat> um yeah back in 2010 when uh, when i applied to uh, tesla uh, they were 900 people globally and uh, I was applying for uh, to be the n- number four employee in um, in the Nordics, and it was a it was a pretty crazy time. Um, Tesla wasn't a company that was very well known. Um, actually, very few people knew about it. Uh, the general car industry looked upon Tesla as a joke um, that would have very limited uh, a very limited lifespan. And I actually, at that time, Elon Musk would read every uh, application that came in after it had moved past the first uh, gate recruiter. So the first job interview I had was with a UK recruiter that was um, in Maidenhead. Uh, At that time, it was Tesla's um, European headquarters. And so I had to write a letter to Elon where he posed, uh, I think, three questions about uh, name your biggest success and why, name your biggest failure and why, and and how you dealt with uh, some key challenges in your life. But it was was an interesting uh, thing. So maybe I should tell you a little, a few little anecdotes um, about what it was like working in Tesla and then extract from those anecdotes some key learnings that, um, that you can use as a, as a startup scale up or a, actually a, any enterprise that you want. Should, that, should we do that? Yeah, let's definitely do that. <clears throat> um, yeah, so I'll start with a story that exemplifies a little bit about how uncompromising uh, Elon Musk has always been and and, uh, some of the reasons why Tesla became what it was. And it was a story that uh, one of my US managers told me. It was back when, it was back in 2007 or eight when they were developing the Tesla Roadster uh, built by Lotus on a Lotus Elise chassis uh, with, with the Tesla technology inside. I remember it, yeah. I remember it well. <clears throat> and the engineers in, in Silicon Valley uh, was working on all aspects of the car, but this specific engineer had the task of making the stereo sound uh, awesome in the car. The thing with uh, open sports car that has a canvas roof is that it is almost impossible to get a really crisp and clear sound because there's so much noise from the car. But Elon insisted that he wanted a really great stereo. So after months and months and months of working on this, the engineer came to the conclusion that that this was as good as it gets. And he he presented it to Elon and Elon was uh, uh, unsatisfied and wanted it to be better. And the story goes, because I wasn't there myself, but but 
this manager <laughs> that told me the story was. He said, the engineer said, but, but Elon, there's no chance I can make it any better than this. It, this is as good as it's going to get. And apparently Elon got really quiet. And he said, I don't think you understand what I'm trying to do here. I just, I don't just want to make the best electric car. I want to make the best car by fucking far. <laughs> <laughs> so sorry for swearing, but uh, that's all right. <laughs> so the uncompromising focus on making something that was the best of the best ever really trickled down through the whole uh, culture of the company and many ways of how things and, and the innovations that would happen in Tesla uh, went a little bit like this. Elon uh, thought of something. He calculated physically if it was possible. And if he came to the conclusion that we could do it uh, within the limits of physics, he decided that we should probably do it. So he would then tell his engineers to make it happen. And no one knew how to solve these uh, challenges, but we just had to because it was physically possible. And, and that kind of pressure can, can, can make it really hard to work in a company, but it can also be super ins inspiring. And I came to the insight that after years and years of working there, there was three key um, things that had to be present for a company like that to, to succeed and to create innovations and momentum and traction. And I made it into a little triangle, if you can see it here. So for those who are listening on Spotify oh, yeah. or, or, on, or on Google or, or wherever you get your podcasts, um, Christian's holding up a, a diagram here and it's a, it's a triangle and we've got um, at the top. Do you want to, do you want to just describe that? Yeah. yeah. So at the top of the triangle, I put purpose. Yeah. There needs to be a really strong purpose with what you're doing. And Tesla's uh, mission statement is a textbook example of what a massive transformative purpose should be. So it is accelerating the world's transition to sustainable energy. It's massive because it's the world's transition. It's transformative because it is um, the transformation too. And um, it has a clear purpose because it's um, um, sustainable energy for the world. So for your company, it doesn't have to be massive and transformative. It can just be a really clear purpose of what you are trying to change in the world, what impact that you want to make. And that's and at the top of the triangle, right? That is at the top of the triangle because it's really important. On the bottom right, I put autonomy. Autonomy because every employee in the company has to be empowered to make business critical decisions to a certain extent, and also feel empowered to perform at their best and receive um, appreciation for it. Because the challenges that you are, that the top management is, is giving you as a team member can be exceptionally hard. Uh, but if you have the autonomy to, to 
um, solve the challenges yourself, you will most probably as a human being work harder to do it. On the other bottom left of my triangle, I put sense of urgency. So <clears throat> every employee in the company should really have their hand firmly placed on the boilerplate. They need to understand viscerally that their role in the company is critical to the company's success. And if you don't perform at your best, um, it will have detrimental effects on your company. It can be many different senses of urgency. It can be reach, uh, go to market faster than your competitors. Uh, it could be as it was in those years in 2010, 11, 13, and so on, that Tesla was basically on the brink of bankruptcy uh, from quarter to quarter. So if we didn't uh, move fast and create, really create things, we would not make it, we would not have a job and we would not make our mission. But really the mission of, trend, of accelerating the world's transition to sustainable energy was also something that created a sense of urgency because we know that we need to change our ways and move away from fossil fuels. <clears throat> what happens then is you have a guiding star, there's something you want, to, there's a positive impact. You have autonomy to make decisions and solve problems. And there's a sense of urgency that it happens, that it needs to happen fast, creates uh, inside the triangle, inside the company is what I call the innovation space. Yeah. And, and in the innovation space, um, creativity uh, blossoms, um, innovation happens, and traction. Um, so, so I feel that the uncompromising focus on, on the best of the best really also combined with a sense of purpose, autonomy, and sense of urgency made uh, sure that we could uh, perform uh, really fast and well. I, I really like that because that just that really does um you know probably sum up any organization what they're looking to try and achieve those three things kind of mm. just bring it all together don't they yeah yeah, yeah. and and when you're moving when you're moving fast and, and and you need to scale quickly there was a couple of different um frameworks or tools that we used uh, in tesla one was was really when we were hiring new employees um, we had this model of three concentric circles where we focused on that that person's mindset skill set and knowledge and if i was hiring if if i were hiring um, an engineer for my team obviously the skill set had to be there that they had to be able to perform certain engineering related tasks but I think 80% of what I looked at when hiring people was really their mindset. If they had, didn't have the right mindset, their skill set didn't uh, matter much. And when it came to knowledge, they had to have basic knowledge of what we were doing, but you can always put knowledge into the brain of people. One example I had was I needed an engineer that could uh, help us um, design and commission the supercharger stations that I was responsible for in, in the Nordics. 
And he had all the right skills. He had a lot of knowledge. And I thought he had the right mindset. But it turned out that um, he didn't. And it was very simple. It was a simple learning for me that when I saw the things that represented um, a mindset that didn't match with my team, I would note down what these actions were. Mm. And then the next time I was hiring, I would ask specific questions that wasn't leading. So it was a yes or no question. But for example, um, in which settings do you do your best work? And one of the problems with this person, he could uh, only work when he was in his office in front of his uh, computer and he has had his um, um, binders with uh, paper documents. But what he really needed to be able to do was do his best work when he only had his laptop, his phone, and it didn't matter where in the world he was because we were flying or taking trains or sitting in metros or whatever it was. And we had to keep producing while we were moving because there wasn't time to travel first and then work later. Yeah. Changing those, when you see what doesn't work for your organization, make sure that, that you really define what actions constitute the right mindset for your company and, and look for those when you hire. And talking about obviously the rollout of those electric electric charging points mm -hmm. quite interesting we were talking earlier about the uk and and how we're very we're way behind mm -hmm. in terms of how many um charging points we currently have in the uk i think you i think tesla had the same challenge but many many years ago when it wasn't even you know there wasn't even a thought of putting an electronic uh, electric charging point into a uh, a petrol station or wherever it was so and I know you've got some great anecdotes about that what what lessons do you think we need to take in the UK to to roll out more of these EV points and what what was your experience back then over 10 years ago as well oh yeah we built the first supercharged stations exactly 10 years ago now um well wow. it was in 2013 it was a, a funny story I had been um uh Tesla started rolling out supercharged stations in California in 2012 when the Model S came out. What's the what's the difference between a supercharged station and a normal EV plug then? Yeah, great question. <clears throat> so for 90% of your charging needs, you will just plug in your EV at home or at work in, in an AC uh, charging station. That will give you... Uh, you use single phase in um, in the UK, so probably around 16 to 32 amps of power. And that will take care of all your needs. So for example, I drive around uh, 25,000 kilometers a year and I charge at home uh, two or three times a week. I plug it in when I get home. I, and you've I still got, you've got your Tesla, right? Uh, I'm on my third Third Tesla now. You're on your third Tesla. Yeah. <laughs> That's crazy. Yeah. When did you get a, your first Tesla then? It was the Tesla Roadster that I bought with a colleague in 2012, I think. Right. Yeah. Uh, that was a fun car. And then I had a Model S. And now I have a Model 3, which is a great car. I love it. Uh, it's the, the, the cheapest um, one 
available right now, but it's a great car. Um, oh yeah, so AC charging is for yeah. everyday charging at home, at work. Uh, you can uh, park in the parking house and plug it in and, and you, you will get a sufficient charge within a few hours. Um, but when you then need to drive long distance, you need to you need to charge your car faster, more comparable to how you would drive into a gas station, fill up the tank, pay, Got you. use the toilet, leave again. Yeah. So at the time when when Tesla decided to build their own charge uh, equipment was because the batteries were so large in the Teslas that they needed a high um, amount of power input um, and other charging stations that were fast charges, which is direct current, DC current, was only what, what is called 50 kilowatt of power. So Tesla decided to build their own at 90 kilowatt power. And that was another crazy um, business model that uh, they developed in the US. And it was that it was for free for everyone that owned a Tesla. And the payoff was really simple and understandable. It was long distance driving for free for life. So when you bought a Model S, you could charge on superchargers for free for the rest of that car's life. <clears throat> and one of the, when that happened, I started, I started pestering the, the guy in the US that, that was um, in charge of uh, the supercharge stations, which is just a name for Tesla's own fast chargers saying, I want to build charging stations in, the, in, the, in, in Europe. And he kept pushing back and saying, we don't have any plans for it. We don't have the budgets. Wait, 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 wait. And then in 2013, Elon Musk went to Norway. He went on national television in Norway and promised the whole country that in three months, when we deliver the first Model S's, you, we will have connected Oslo, Bergen, Trondheim, and Stavanger with superchargers. Right. Okay. Three months. Helpful. And the next day I got the call from Greg in the US and he said, did you hear Elon on, on television in Norway? I said, yes, I did. Okay. Are you ready to, to join the team and build superchargers in Norway? I said, yes, I am. And he said, great. You're going next week. <laughs> At that time, I was the sense of urgency was it was was put in there, right? For you. <laughs> it it was in April of 2013, and we were planning to deliver the first uh, cars in uh, August, uh, April, May, June, July, August. Maybe it was actually even June that we uh, July we planned. So I went to Norway. We we had meetings with every single stakeholder uh, that we needed to work with up there. And they all shook their head and laughed at us and said, you can't build six of, six of the biggest charging stations that has ever been built in Norway in three months and during the summer vacation. Norway closes down on the 23rd of, of June. <clears throat> and we said, well, we just have to make it happen. And what I learned from from Greg was really, how do we shorten timelines from i.e. eight months to eight weeks? How do we make that possible? Because we can't do it ourselves. And the, 
the way of doing it was really bringing all the stakeholders in, meeting together, telling them what our targets were, what our purpose in, in the world was, and making it really clear that without them on our team, without their help and expertise, we had no chance of making it. So we would sit in some Norwegian town, bring in the landlord, the mayor if possible, but at least one of the higher ups in the municipality because we needed a building, um, uh, you send in an application to get a, what's yeah. it called in English? Um, planning permission. Permission, building permissions. Yeah. We had to dig and we had electricians. Um, so we had all the stakeholders in the room and we sincerely brought them on to help us as a team to do this that had never been done before. And when you tell someone in the municipality that is just moving papers from A to B every day, that they have a part of making history, then suddenly it maybe it becomes possible for them to take ownership of making sure that you get your building permission as fast as possible. Mm. And when you tell the utility company that you need that you need one megawatt of power in six weeks, and usually it takes six months, then somehow they can find a transformer station somewhere. And somehow they can also make sure that, that, um, it's, uh, that it's, it's getting commissioned uh, within six to, to eight weeks. So it, it's, it's, not about, it's not about breaking the rules or definitely not breaking the law but it is about making sure that you pull people in, that they understand their worth and they are part of your team. And then suddenly a lot of stuff that wasn't possible before suddenly becomes possible. And we, we made it, we, we actually doubled the charging capacity of all of Norway in those four months by building six uh, supercharger stations. Something that we also, coming back to your point of um, rolling out charging um, infrastructure in, in the UK, what we knew was that we had to build more power than we needed because uh, at a certain point, because we knew that the fleet of cars would grow. We didn't know exactly how much it would grow, but we knew it was, it was expanding rapidly. So we always built redundancy into the network. At first, we would probably only need two charge points, but we also always built six. And we always made sure that we had more power than needed so we could upgrade quickly. We made our contract so we could expand the station at the same location. Um, so really thinking redundancy, thinking expansion into your plans is crucial. And in the UK, what I think is super important for uh, any, um, anyone listening that can make decisions is if you look at the expected um, uptake of electric vehicles in the UK, you should consider that they are probably between 20 and 40% to uh, um, negative. So they're, you're underestimating how fast the uptake will be. And always make sure that you have more charging capacity than the need for the number of vehicles 
And whenever you, you plan uh, building charging stations, make sure that you um, over uh, oversize the infrastructure behind. So you, when you open up the ground to put in the cables, put in twice as many uh, cables as you need because you will most likely need to expand very soon. And if only the people that knew this in the UK that did this five years ago knew what you knew now, what, what's going on, because we, we're so behind the times with that, really. I mean, I, I drive into a, you know, a big supermarket Tesco here in the UK mm. and there's, I don't know, maybe 10 charging points for electric vehicles at, at the, you know, at the front of the, um, mm. of the, of the, of the building. Yeah. Um, as opposed to, you know, hundreds and hundreds of, of of normal car parking spaces. And I see that the Tesla superchargers that you, because you came over to the UK and you mapped out where those Tesla chargers were going to be in yeah. all of the motorway service stations. Yeah. And I now talk to my friends who have got Teslas, mm -hmm. who drive from here to Middlesbrough, maybe, and it's less than, well, about 100 miles or so. And they have you know battery anxiety is the it's a thing range, because range anxiety range, range anxiety yeah and then they I've, I've heard stories of where they've gone to you know stopped at various places that the the tesla map tells you to and they're either broken not working or there's just so many people there and there's a there's an image on on online at the moment in a uk motorway service point where there's literally 15 or so teslas mm -hmm all kind of lined up in front of each other. Um, yeah. I mean, that's a complete catastrophe. Um, and we were uh, a, a critical part of our responsibility of uh, as, as supercharger managers, making sure that our network was, uh, was up to uh, date and was never have any wait times, never have lines uh, to wait on getting to charge while well, and wait to charge, right? So there was a funny, uh, funny story that also can, I think we can translate into this the secret Twitter strategy of Elon Musk, how to give the impression that Tesla works ten times faster than everyone else, um, and. <clears throat> Well, they actually do work 10 times faster than everyone else, <laughs> but there's also a way of communicating it in a way where everyone uh, understands. So what I realized uh, very often would happen that we would, in Tesla, we would uh, experience a challenge of some kind. And for us, it was um, wait lines on superchargers. So we needed to expand faster than the amount of delivered cars. We also had one other key challenge. It was that many people, because it was free back then to charge, they would come and drop off their car, plug it in the supercharger. They would leave to go shopping or, or to the fitness uh, center and, and be away for two hours. And it only took them 45 minutes to fill up their car. So the car would block one of the charge points for one and a half hours where someone else could have gone through really fast, but it was, blocking and we didn't know how to solve that problem but we knew it, it had to be solved so we were working for um, a couple of months on coming up with different solutions of 
of nudging or incentivizing people to, to leave the charging station as fast as possible. When we finally got it approved, then our software engineers had to program the back end so we could do the uh, take the payment and give the send out the text messages from the car and so on and so forth. Two weeks before it was ready to launch, Elon uh, decided to, or Elon decided to answer one of these concerns through his Twitter profile. We had seen these concerns for several months. We knew it was there, but he hadn't reacted to it until that day. And it was something along the lines of someone wrote on Twitter, Elon, can you do something about um, people leaving their cars uh, on supercharger stations um, blocking the charge points? And he said, thank you for informing me. Yes, it is a real problem. We will do something about it. And two weeks later, because we were already ready with everything, we launched the new um, system of that you would be charged a fee for standing uh, more than five minutes after you were finished charging. And the internet just went mad. <laughs> oh my God, Tesla is so fast. Elon, he recognized the problem. He told his team that they had to fix it. Two weeks later, there was a solution implemented. So in that way, I, and, I, and I think they did that Tesla with many different things, realized something were, was a challenge, implement, implemented a fix, then Elon reacted on Twitter and very shortly after uh, it was um, official. So that's also a way of really, number one, listening to your customers, number two, making sure that you do something about it as fast as you can, and then number three, uh, timing your response in public in the most opportune way. Um, I, I love that. There's like myth and reality all, all coming together at the same time. But yeah, yeah it I, listen, it's great. I, I, you know, absolutely hats off. And I can imagine that that's, you know, happens all the time. But, but you know, talking about, um, you know, Tesla and Elon Musk, you, you, when you applied, you mentioned your application form and that there was some questions there. You were the fourth Denmark or Dan sorry, Danish um, in the Nordic countries. Yeah. In the Nordic countries. So what was what was um, you know? Did you ever get any feedback on your application? <laughs> uh, yes, I did. Um, so at that time, I applied for an entry level job. Um, as store coordinator. So basically you had to be on the floor of the Tesla store and do everything. Uh, help the sales guys, uh, make coffee, clean, register cars, wash cars, everything. And I had a master's degree in business from Copenhagen Business School. I already had some experience under my belt. I was in a job as, um, as business developer with the executive team in the Danish charge operator, Clever. But still, I was applying for an entry-level job where I had to also take a, a salary cut. So my second job interview was with um, a VC in Silicon Valley that was placed from the investor in the company to, to overlook uh, their investment. And his name is Tim Watkins. And if you read the biography about Elon Musk, you will, you will, meet, uh, you will see that guy in there. 
And one of the first questions he told me on the phone call was, so Christian, um, Elon told me to uh, find out uh, which one of these two um, is uh, true. He thinks that you're either crazy or you're lying. <laughs> and my response was, well, I'm definitely not lying. <laughs> so that leaves only one option. And I said, why do you ask? He said, well, your, your resume doesn't match the, um, the level of, of the job. And I said, no, I know. Um, so I had to promise him that I would um, work my uh, butt off and not complain and just overperform the next, uh, the first two years of my employment because we, we were expecting the Model S to come out in two years from now. And he promised me that if I performed um, as I should, I would be up for promotion when, when the next car came. And it took three years instead of two. And I can tell you that there was quite a few times during those three years where I thought, was this the worst decision I ever made? <laughs> <laughs> but, but it turned out it wasn't. So yeah. I became the, uh, I was quickly uh, promoted when the Model S came. And, and then from there, we went on to the supercharged team. I was sent to Norway. Then I was sent to Germany, Netherlands, and, um, and uh, Switzerland to build the next superchargers there. I had almost forgotten that um, uh, while building the, the team in the Nordics, we also had a, had a super high urgency need to put in more charging stations in the UK and we didn't have enough employees. So I brought one of my team members to um, the Manchester and Birmingham area uh, to scout for, uh, for new stations. So yeah, it was a crazy ride. I mean, that, Scaling, scaling that quickly is, is really, um, I don't know how to use the right English word, but it, it feels a little bit absurd. Well, I, I just ran the numbers here. When I started 13 years ago, it was, um, there was 900 employees. And today there is 127,000 employees in Tesla. When wow. I left, there was uh, 38,000. So if you break that down, they hire uh, on average 9,700 employees per uh, year. That's 26 new hires per day. And in, the, and in that time frame also, we went from building 200 cars a year to now they are building on almost 2 million cars uh, in 2023. And also, I mean, this is a hiring tip that I think uh, people can use if they need to scale really quickly and hire uh, many people. That's something we did with the Supercharger team. We were four people and we needed to become uh, 15 really quickly and then later 25. So what we did was we, we, we did um, two hiring days in Amsterdam. We had worked a couple of months to get in candidates. So all we would have 15 to 20 candidates coming in on the first day. We gave them a, a presentation of what we were looking to uh, do. We were looking to hire three to five people from the batch of 20. Um, and we took them through a full day of casework. We split them into a number of groups and 
each one of us had a different role to play and we would then go around um, and sit with the groups to help them work and to note how they were working, how they were trying, how they, um, what their perspective on, on solving problems was and really note down each of the people. And sometimes it would be the good cop that would come in and, and, and by asking the right questions, get them back on the right track if they were going off the wrong track. And sometimes it would be the bad cop and come in and just uh, berate them on the ridiculous um, solutions that they were trying to come up with. And then after uh, we were done with a full day of casework and they had presented uh, the results, we said, thank you very much. And we had a list of the candidates in the, in the room where we were five, six people. And we had to give, when, when a name was called Bob Bobson, we had to give thumbs up, thumbs to the side or thumbs down. And we would then count. So in that way, we would go through all of the candidates and take away the ones that had all thumbs down and then redo an explanation in the group. Why do you give this guy thumbs up or that girl thumbs up or a medium thumb? And from that, we would then hone in on say, okay, these three candidates are worth hiring. And the next day they would receive a call from us saying, you're hired. Really simple. Mm -hmm. um, is that possible these days? It is. And in tech, do you think that's possible? How would you, how would you sort of apply that to, um, because, you know, we have, a, we have a, a skill shortage throughout the world in tech, especially here in the UK. Mm. What, what advice would you give a startup now or someone looking to scale? I, I would probably do uh, follow uh, the same general um, general process. I know uh, a good friend of mine that still works in, in, in Tesla that had to um, increase his team by a factor of 10 or 15 within the last year. He still follows the same process. So he uses Tesla recruiting to uh, source all the candidates and he then travels around to the different markets where he's building teams and takes a number of people through this kind of process uh, with some of his colleagues to to um, to scale quickly what i also did when you want to bring in one person at a time i would have the first meeting like this uh, as a general job interview for half an hour if if i felt that there was a um, that there was a possibility, I would give them um, a case study. That was a specific case that they needed to solve that was an actual working case that we could have worked on. And they had 48 hours. They could choose to do it as fast or as slow as possible, as long as it, it landed in my inbox no later than Friday morning at nine, because that was 48 hours later. And based on how I saw that they had uh, solved the case study, I would then make a decision if, if I would take an in-person interview or uh, would tell them that they were not in the running anymore. And specifically testing people on skills that you need to have them solve in the current work is super important. You can't just sit around and asking them, oh, can you uh, program C++? And they say, yeah, I can. Oh, okay, great, I need that. <laughs> I would ask them to tell me something about how you code in C++. 
what is the things that you do and you don't do? What I do is something like that. I don't know how yeah. to code C++, yeah. but, but I'm just um, mentioning that. So that is um, something that we did with, uh, with great success. And, um, you know, going back then to, you know, leaving Tesla, mm-hmm. um, moving into the tech startup world yourself, mm-hmm. um, where, where who, who did you work for? What was your sort of role? And again, you know, what advice would you give? <clears throat> what other advice would you give that we've probably not discussed for a tech startup here in the UK? Yeah. Especially with the especially with the challenges they face now, you know, we 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 we're we're moving into a different world again, aren't we? That's been disrupted, I guess. Yeah, um, I went on to work for a company called Singularity University that um, did executive uh, training programs for uh, mid and top level managers on on innovation and and uh, technology and specifically convergence of technologies from different sectors that probably didn't see if you were just in your silo. So something that that I experienced traveling to Silicon Valley and, and also working with the tech startups here in, in, in the Nordics was really you need to you need to number one be very structured and systematic about uh, creating your product. And there's a really good reason why tech startups and Tesla and many other companies that I can mention here, they follow more or less the build, measure, learn loop that is from the startup. You and start with your MVP. All of these things sound pretty like banalities, and and every tech person that may be listening to this podcast will say, yeah, 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 we know the build, measure, learn loop. But I see again and again that they lose their focus on, on the problem for the customer. And, and these build, measure, learn loops, these iterations, they have to be really quick and dirty. They have to, they can't take a lot of time because you really have to make sure that, that you keep moving and keep momentum. So that's number one. Number two is it's not about the idea. It's about the execution. And I saw this in, in October, I went to uh, Lyft's headquarters and it was, um, it was, um, it was a gathering from, uh, with data scientists from Lyft, uh, Snap, Snapchat, and Reddit. And I realized two things. Number one, uh, growth hacking is, is out. It's, it's old news. It's called growth engineering. It is super scientific, data-based. It's, it's uh, algorithms that, that they showed that I have no idea. I'm a business guy. I'm not, I'm not a math, math guy. But what I realized is if you really truly believe that, that, that the value is not in the idea itself, it is in the execution of the idea, then you will also be prone to sharing much more and then getting super valuable feedback from the outside. And the level of, of sharing that, that they did in this event with lots of people in the room that was, was through Meetup. So any guy like me coming from Denmark could sign up and go there. 
they truly believe that if they have the best team to execute on their idea, they will only get value from sharing the ideas. And I think they they get uh, really strong candidates applying for them. Um, they get a really great input from other uh, engineers that were fascinated by by the way they were going and they wanted to ask them questions. And so, yeah, really, really be open to sharing your ideas, really be open to getting uh, inspiration from the outside. We have a tendency to really close our minds around what we're doing and, and, and working, 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 working. So we forget to talk to our customers. We forget to, to um, share our ideas. We forget to get feedback from the outside. So that limits creativity. And do you, do you find that that's um, almost a natural thing in the Nordics to be a little bit more closed, whereas yes. in, in America, in Silicon Valley, it's just, you know, a little bit more natural to be open like that? Yes, definitely. I think it's both a cultural thing, but it's um, generally like nationality wise. Uh, People in Nordics are known for being quite um, introvert compared to other nationalities. But I also think that it has been the modus operandi or the way of doing things in Silicon Valley for so many years now that if, if you don't engage, if you don't share, if you don't, um, if you're not open, um, you won't get far. I think we sometimes forget, don't we, that um, we're even though so much of our life is made easier by technology, so much of our life is, um, you know, I guess automated to a point, and AI is every day kind of seeping into our lives more and more to make our lives easier. We're still people. We're still human. We still thrive in tribes and we still thrive in communication and telling stories and and I guess I guess we forget that and then go oh yeah we're pretty we're pretty good at that aren't we and that's when that's when great things happen and I it guess does. what you've described this morning is how you know um people with a shared vision a shared purpose something that's impactful and significant and means something yes you need a uh, a leader who is very very focused very very driven but they also need to be focused and driven on a on something that means something to a lot of people so you've described a lot today about how the impossible happens when certain things align yeah. and it's been really interesting to hear your kind of viewpoint on tesla your experience you know and it's and it's it's fascinating but the 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 sort of thing that keep we keep coming back to or at least in my mind we keep coming back to is that human element and we can't forget that can we no no you really have to start with yourself you have to start with the humans in your organization and there's only one elon musk but there are so many amazing entrepreneurs out there that are changing the world and are uh, is making an outsized impact and and they all have to remember that with a strong purpose for your company and your employees it's you create uh, more 
retention of your employees and, and higher satisfaction. And you've and you've helped me a little bit with that with my business just recently, talking about my purpose and 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 trying to solve problems. So I thank you for that. And now you're going on that journey yourself a little bit to sort of decide where you're going to be, whether it be kind of consultancy or working for an organization full time. I feel like that there's 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 thousands of businesses here in the UK and probably beyond that would really benefit from some of your time. Is that something that you want to sort of, you know, push through now and, and look into more deeply? Yes, it is something that I'm working on now. I'm currently consulting two different uh, scale-ups um, and a very early stage startup here um, in Denmark. Um, and I recognize, I see every time that I go to, um, from early stage to scale up to small, medium-sized companies that we can use our, my tools and my almost fanatic focus on the customer value that it can be used in strategy work. It can be used in business model creation. It can be used in, in CSR. It can be creating your purpose. There's, it, 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 it's sort of the, the, the fundamental the foundation of creating a successful company that I see again and again that that I don't I don't come in to tell companies how they should do it. I just facilitate a process of them figuring it out themselves. And that gives me great pleasure and purpose in life to to see their eyes light up and suddenly like, oh my God, we we totally forgot that this is the value we're bringing to these people solving those problems. Um, and I very rarely know what the solution is when I walk into a room with a new uh, company. Well, I, I don't, but and they don't, but they figure it out themselves. And you've got those um, sort of guiding principles and those models that you've created mm. through your experience with, with the likes of Tesla and working mm. for those other organizations and that experience in Silicon Valley. Yeah. And um and I think you and I will probably work together to try and see how we can may maybe share some of those insights with our community. Um, sure. But I think what comes across is this sort of endearing passion that you have for helping organisations get to where they want to be. And it's a little bit like, you know, a counsellor. A counsellor doesn't sit down with a person and say tell me about your problems and then says right well this is how we're going to fix them a counselor will counsel they will listen to that person intently they'll ask them questions and it will be down to that individual to actually come up with the answers themselves and realize oh this is why i am the way i am and this yeah. is why i think this way and now i understand and now i get it and that's a little bit like yourself really isn't it very much i think you put it very well yeah you're a, a business counselor um <laughs> but listen um i've really really enjoyed um speaking to you today mate um i really appreciate it cuz um <laughs> and um i i think that there's there's so many little things that we probably didn't cover that yeah. we'll when we listen back to this i think we should kind of write down all the stuff that we can probably expand on and maybe come up with um, some bits and pieces, some extra content um, 
around some of the things that we talked about and expand on those subjects because I think there's there's so much more to unpick there that I think the clients that I work with and the companies I talk to would would really really benefit from especially those tech companies every every company's a tech company right but those, those businesses that are scaling I think what's really important which is probably something that they've not even thought about and here's here's a here's one for you so during the pandemic a lot of tech businesses went on a a bit of a marauding spree of of hiring Mm -hmm. and we're now seeing the fallout of that Mm -hmm. and i think that and i experienced this in the dot-com boom and bust of the early 2000s organizations hired like crazy they then you know uh, went under because their business model wasn't right at the time or the technology wasn't advanced enough for that business and then I remember people for for years saying to me oh, I don't want to go and work for a startup mm. I don't care I don't care how much you know um stocks or shares because it doesn't matter you know I've seen that these e-commerce you know dot-com um, bust has mm. happened I don't want to be burnt like that. And I can see that that we're going to have the same challenge again. So organizations that that hired aggressively, like Amazon, like um, Twitter, like uh, the big, big players have all made these recent layoffs. I think a lot of people are going to be really sort of, you know, cautious now about joining a a startup or a scale up. So Mm. that's maybe something we can talk about. But but very briefly, what what do you think of that? Do you think what 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 does a small scale up who goes? Yeah, but we're not gonna we're not gonna be like that. What do they have to do to attract that talent now, and and kind of, you know, I guess box off that fear of, of that somebody might have. Hmm. Yeah, you have to be you have to be really clear about the principles that you. Um, that guide you. But what are your guiding principles as a company? How do you describe what those principles mean to you as a company? And how does that translate into action? Mm. What are the do's when you work according to these principles? And what are the don'ts? So that is the first step of, um, of, of that. And I think really, <clears throat> Companies who seek to attract employees, um, early stage companies, uh, they can't really promise um, anything to anyone, but they should should do their very best to be honest with themselves and honest with um, their potential employees, their candidates. So I think really it's, it's on the other side I want to talk to how the candidate should look at a company to decide if he or she wants to join. And, and for me, it's really how, how is, how are the people that work there that run the company? How does it feel for you? Can you, um, can you relate? Do you understand the value proposition that the company is bringing to the world? Do you, um, sympathize with what they're 
trying to change in the world and do you see opportunity that something will happen that that they will be successful also with your help and i remember this very clearly from joining tesla no one or the general consensus was that tesla was not going to survive mm. but i decided to take the leap because i firmly believe that it was the future and this company would most probably be the next big big thing i could have been wrong i it wasn't helped. it helped that you had a three-wheel electric vehicle already <laughs> it, did. it did so yeah um really be honest about who you are mm. uh, as a startup and and make sure that you as co-founders spend the necessary time to discuss among you what your guiding principles are how that how that is described and how it translates into action of, of how you engage in the world with with your employees with your customers with all stakeholders really i mean it, it it's kind of it's kind of obvious and makes sense right but um you know as, as you as you as you well know um it's easily forgotten um christian it's been an absolute pleasure Thank you for being on the podcast. Um, I really, really appreciate it. We've we've had a lot of people that are, are kind of more tech focused, um, but I think what you've brought to the um, to the party is very different from probably a lot of the conversations we're going to have with people. Mm. Um, it's been a lot more focused around the bigger picture. Mm. Um, it's been focused around that cultural CSR element, I think as well, and the values that, that companies need to think about. And um, it's been lovely to hear about your, um, you know, your experience for, for one of the biggest companies in the world. Um, yeah. And, yeah. and that journey has been, it's been brilliant to hear. Um, thank you again. I do appreciate it. And I hope to have you back again in the future. Well, Sam, thank you very much. It's been a, an absolute pleasure for me, and it's great having this conversation. I know it's been very abstract. Uh, it's been very big picture. Um, but for me, we need to start there before we then jump into the nuts and bolts and pull out the, the toolbox and start hammering in nails and, and uh, tightening screws. But it's all there. It certainly is. It certainly is. Listen, thank you again, mate. Really appreciate it. Um, and um, yeah, we we will uh, we will. If you're listening to the the end of this podcast now, we're going to have some supporting material that we'll um, that we'll share with people. Maybe maybe talk a little bit about your models. Um, and um, and yes, uh, we'd love your feedback. Um, anybody who'd like to know more about Christian, um, we'll have a link to his LinkedIn profile and you can ask him anything. Thanks very much, Christian. Thank you very much, Sam. Thank you for listening to this episode of the True Worth Tech Talks podcast. It means a lot. And if you got this far, we want to reward your patience. Send me an email to sam at trueworthconsulting.com and just put the word Eric in the subject field and your home address in the mail. I won't keep that data or store it anywhere, I promise you, but I will send you a special gift as a thank you. And any feedback will be greatly appreciated. Tell us what you think, 
what you want us to be talking about in the future episodes and we'll try to make that happen. Now, if this gets really popular, we might have to change this message. But for now, let's see how many people actually listen all the way to the end of a podcast. And if that's you, thank you. And I look forward to speaking to you on the next one. Take care. Bye for now.